0: Well, please turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. This morning we'll be reading verses 1 through 11 of Titus chapter 3, but our focus will be on verses 8 through 11. So Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Please pay careful attention for this is God's holy and inspired word given to us this morning. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that, that, that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there are no doubt scores of books written about leadership and how to grow big, mega-churches in the 21st century. Now, many of these books would be better suited for MBA programs than pastors and elders within the church. Now, this short epistle that we've been considering over the past several weeks is jam-packed with helpful and even timeless principles for how we can, quote-unquote, do church. For how we can build healthy churches. Churches where we can be assured that Christ, where Christ's presence dwells. Now here in this passage, verses 8-11, through Paul is reminding Titus of two very important principles. Uh, Important principles that are themselves interrelated. And these two important principles are confession and correction. And by confession, I don't mean that we're called to go into a Roman Catholic confessional and confess our sins to a priest, nor, do I, nor am I referring to when we confess our sins corporately as a body on the Lord's Day. Rather, by confession, I mean when we confess the Christian faith, like we just got done doing in the Apostles' Creed. So confession and correction. These are the two principles that Paul is reminding Titus of, And if we care at all about Christ's presence in our midst as the church, we also should care about these two ideas and principles that Paul is laying down before us. Confession and correction. Now in verse 8, the Apostle Paul says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Now, the vast majority of commentators identify this trustworthy saying as the content of verses 4 through 7. Now, recall last week what Paul said in verses 4 through 7. We considered how Paul describes the good news of the grace of the gospel in verses 4 through 7. God the Father saved us according to his mercy through the objective work of Christ. By the washing of regeneration. Our salvation, the grace of God, is a Trinitarian work. This is the content of this trustworthy saying that Paul is alluding to. Now there are five trustworthy sayings in Paul's epistles. And these trustworthy sayings cover a range of topics from the gospel to our ethical conduct to church order. Now, many commentators believe that in these trustworthy sayings, Paul may have been quoting liturgical or catechetical summaries of the faith that had been circulating the first century church. These trustworthy sayings were summaries or reflections upon Jesus' teaching or other biblical passages. Now, of course, because Paul cited some of these trustworthy sayings in his epistles, some of these trustworthy sayings themselves became inspired scripture. Nevertheless, the presence of these trustworthy sayings in the first century indicate or teach us that the earliest Christian communities practiced the pattern of responding to biblical revelation By confessing their faith and using these confessions or summaries of the faith as catechetical guides or liturgical forms. Now, this is not the only place in the book of Titus where Paul alludes to something like a creed or confession. Recall what Paul said in Titus 1:9 as he was laying down the qualifications for an elder. He, said that, he says that a potential elder must hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught. Notice that Paul doesn't say that an elder must just have a sincere love and devotion to the word of God. Now that's important, but there's a lot more to it than that. An elder must hold fast. To the Word, as confessed, summarized, and taught, in the creeds and confessions of the Reformed Church, he must hold fast to the trustworthy Word as taught. So, the reason why we, as a, a church plant, a Reformed church plant, emphasize being uh, being a confessional church—that is to say. Uh, We subscribe to historic creeds and confessions and we seek to make these creeds and confessions a part of the life of our community together. The reason why we emphasize this distinctive is because we believe that it is a biblical distinctive. That it is grounded in the word of God itself and thus we are seeking to be faithful to this principle. Now why are we tempted to dismiss these trustworthy sayings? Or why are we tempted to dismiss the creeds and confessions of the church? Well, one author I was reading uh, this week uh, talks about how we live in a culture that devalues the past. And he gave a number of examples to back up this assertion. So first, take the field of science. Typically speaking, science today does not treat the scientific insights, insights of the 4th century or the 16th century as being authoritative or normative for us today, and, and, or, nor should they. Think of, think of technology. Typically speaking, it's the younger generations who are teaching the older generations how to use their iPhone or iPad or TV. And this really goes against that creational wisdom that younger generations are to be under the tutelage of older generations. Think about how our culture is doing history right now. Many in our culture are writing off those who have gone before us because of their moral blind spots, forgetting that we all have feet of clay. Furthermore, we also see this evidenced in our consumerism. As soon as you buy a new iPhone, a new TV, a new car, almost as soon as next week it is outdated and you desire the newest model. Now, of course, these examples aren't all necessarily wrong or sinful, but we, we do need to be cognizant that we live and breathe Monday through Saturday in a cult- culture and society that very much devalues the past, rightfully or wrongfully. It's easy for us, then, to come into the church and have that same attitude in the church and think, well, what, what relevance does the Bible really have for me today when we have all of these self-help books and principles circulating in our current society. What what benefits do ancient liturgies and creeds and confessions have for us as modern 21st century citizens? But the church is nothing if it does not value the past. Our foundational document is a book that's thousands of years old. The author of the Hebrews calls us to remember our leaders, those who spoke to us the word of God, not just in the contemporary church but also in the historic church as they speak to us through those ancient forms and trustworthy sayings. And so we are to be a people who are countercultural in this regard. We are to be a people who value and cherish the past, who value the trustworthy, uh, the trustworthy sayings, who value and hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught and summarized in our creedal expressions. Now, these trustworthy sayings or these creeds and confessions also give us, as a a benefit, they also give us an accepted form of speech through which we can pass down the faith to the next generation. Now, I mentioned that many commentators believe that these trustworthy sayings were used as catechetical guides and liturgical forms so that the early Christians would have an accepted form of speech by which they could understand the word of God. Now, no one today merely hands down the Bible to their kids or the next generation. Everyone is handing down a certain interpretation of that Bible. And so the question we need to ask is, what interpretation are we handing down? Are we handing down our individual interpretation or the individual interpretation of of someone else, or are we handing down the interpretation that is rooted and stands upon those who've gone before us in the Orthodox Church? Uh, You can think of it this way. Imagine you want to teach your child to be a basketball player, but you want to teach your child to be a basketball player unhindered from the accepted rules and techniques that ordinarily govern the game of basketball. Good luck, right? (laughs) Your child is not going to be a basketball player if you adopt that method. In the same way, if we desire to pass down the faith to the next generation, the only way we're going to do that in a meaningful way is if we have an accepted form of speech and language that delineates orthodoxy from heresy and that serves as a foundation for us to interpret the Bible. And where do we get that accepted form of language? We get that in our creeds and confessions. And this is why... We, in our catechism service, every week I go through those same questions with, with our youth. What is true faith? What is the content of faith? What is the benefit of faith? At this point it may seem a bit redundant, but I'm doing this in an intentional way so that we as a church, as a covenant community, can have an accepted form of speech that we can all agree upon. So Paul here is calling us to cherish these trustworthy sayings and to use these trustworthy sayings in order to pass down the faith in a meaningful way to the next generation. Now, after commending this trustworthy saying of the gospel, of the grace of God in verse 8, Paul reminds Titus in the church in Crete what deviations to avoid. So if you look with me in verse 9, Paul says, But avoid... Foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. Now, I want for the sake of time to to camp out on what Paul means here by foolish controversies. What does Paul mean here by foolish controversies? Well, in part, I believe what Paul has in mind here is when we take a Christian freedom issue. And we take that Christian freedom issue and we elevate it so that it becomes a marker of orthodoxy. (laughs) Meaning we begin to believe that if people don't agree with us on said issue, then they, they must not be a Christian. Or we take this issue or such issues and we assert that God has spoken explicitly on the issue or the issues when he really has not. Or further yet, we take such issues and we make them the foundation of our unity together within the body of Christ. Now, what are examples of of some of these issues? Well, again, we can make a long list here, but I think some some relevant issues for us as a Reformed church could be uh, specific applications of complementarian gender roles or parenting philosophies or how we as individuals view certain political or cultural movements or policies, educational philosophies, or whatever educational option we have chosen for our children, whether it be public school, home school, or private school. And we could continue on in adding to this list. And what makes these discussions or discussions on these topics foolish controversies are not the topics themselves. Rather, these topics are good topics, legitimate topics, moral topics even. What makes discussion on these topics fall into the realm of foolish controversies is when we elevate them beyond what they are, important Christian freedom issues, and we elevate them to make them markers of orthodoxy, when we elevate them to the status and authority of our creeds and confessions, when we make them the foundation of our unity with one another and consequently then foster division within the body over these issues. That's when they become foolish controversies. And as Paul says in verse 8, they are unprofitable. The very opposite of what he says regarding the trustworthy sayings of verse 8. The trustworthy sayings, they are excellent and profitable for people. They are the foundation of our unity together within the body of Christ. And so we need to be very careful that we don't do this on important Christian freedom issues. Issues that are are worthy of our attention, worthy of our discussion, worthy of our time, but must remain important Christian freedom issues. Well, Paul goes on to tell Titus that he is to correct those who engage in the deviations of verse 9. So he continues in verses 10 through 11. He says, As for a person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self condemned. Now, correction in the church is only coherent if there's a stable confession from which someone is deviating. So, as you can see, the In order for for Titus to to properly correct the divisive person, there must be a functional, trustworthy saying operative within the church. Otherwise, by what standard is Titus going to correct the divisive person? And when Paul says, as for the man who stirs up division, this reflects uh, one word in the original language here, and it's the word uh, from which we get the word heretic. So Paul is referring to a heretic of sorts, someone who is, who who is seeking to stir up division within the body of Christ. Now, these warnings that Paul says that Titus and the church in Crete are to give to this divisive person are not informal warnings of lay people within the church. Rather, these warnings are given by Titus as a minister of the gospel with the public authority of the church. So these are formal warnings. These are warnings given by Titus as a minister of the gospel with the public authority of the church of Jesus Christ. To put it another way, Paul here is telling Titus to exercise church discipline. Church discipline is another phrase that you've been visiting with us for any length of time. you, You probably have heard speak about um, quite often. It's it's a mark of a a true church. It's something that the New Testament speaks about on many occasions. And the foundational passage for church discipline comes in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 18. Here, Jesus gives a number of, of steps that we are to follow when we see a brother committing a serious private sin. When we see a brother committing a serious private sin, we are to go to that brother, that person, one-to-one. And if that person fails to hear us, fails to repent, then we are to bring one or two others along with us and confront that individual. If that individual fails to hear us as a group, then we are to tell it to the church, meaning we are to tell it to the church officers, the consistory, the pastors and the elders, And the church officers are to go to that individual and call them to repentance. If that person fails to hear the church officers, then Jesus says we are to treat them as a Gentile or a tax collector. And then he concludes this passage by saying, when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. And that last phrase, that last verse that Jesus gives is not a description of what happens in your informal Bible study or small group. That's a verse that indicates that Jesus is present in those churches that are faithful to exercise church discipline. That's why this principle is so important. Jesus' presence in the church is on the line when it comes to whether or not we are going to be faithful when it comes to this principle. Now, here in Titus 3.10, Paul is giving specific instructions when it comes to the third and fourth steps of church discipline. Paul is telling Titus what he is to do when someone brings to him news of a serious private sin of an individual. He is to, and by extension the consistory, they are to warn the individual twice, and then they are to have nothing more to do with him. Now, when Paul says that Titus is to have nothing more to do with him, he is in part alluding to what we refer to as excommunication. This is what Jesus meant when he said that we should treat the individual as a Gentile or a tax collector. This doesn't mean that we shun the individual. Rather, this means that the church revokes their affirmation of that person's profession of faith. And furthermore, it means that the church revokes the privileges of membership, the chief of which is coming to the Lord's table. Hence, the term excommunication. And so Paul, when he says that Titus is to have nothing more to do with him, he is in part alluding to excommunication. However, Paul also is referring to how pastors and elders should manage their time as he, as he uses this phrase. Uh, John Calvin has a wonderful comment on this verse. He, he, he notes how one of Satan's strategy, uh, strategies is to entangle faithful pastors and even elders with an endless litany of disputes from divisive persons and thus distract them from their main duties of teaching, caring, and shepherding the sheep who are doing well within their fold. And that's the wisdom behind Paul's instruction here to Titus. After warning him twice, have nothing more to do with him. Now, Paul already in this short epistle has alluded to church discipline. So, recall what Paul said in Titus 1.9, which I already mentioned, that a potential elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. And then Paul continues a few verses later and says that Titus, as a minister, is to rebuke the false teachers of Crete sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Titus 1.13. Notice in that verse the purpose of this correction. That they may be sound in the faith. The goal, the purpose of of discipline, of correction, is always the the health of a person's faith. It's always restoration and repentance. It's never punitive judgment. That's how ecclesiastical discipline differs from civil discipline. The goal of discipline, furthermore, is not, first of all, a change of behavior. That's something that we, we might think. But the goal of discipline is not, first of all, a change of behavior. The goal of discipline is repentance and true faith in Jesus Christ. Recall the gospel logic that Paul has been giving us in the epistle to Titus. It's only when we have true faith in the gospel that we will be able and motivated to live a life of good works. Again, Titus 3.8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Belief in God, belief in the gospel is the foundation, the engine to living a life of good works. And so if we see someone who is failing to live a life of good works, someone who is engaged in vice and serious sin, merely telling them to do better or try harder or stop doing this and start doing that will be completely ineffective. They need to be called to repentance and true faith in Jesus Christ. Because it's only when their life is built upon the foundation of the gospel will they be able, willing, and desirous to put off the old man and put on the new man. And so we need to remember that. Yes, we need to come down with the law, but we also need to lead people to the good news of the gospel as the only foundation of a life of good works. Now, putting into practice what Paul is telling the church to do here is difficult. It's especially difficult for officers within the church. One author puts it this way. He says, it is as easy to just leave a church as it is for pastors and elders to just let someone go. Laziness can always be spun as tolerance. Love requires a greater burden from everyone involved. Just as it's so easy for people today to flit in and out of churches without any commitment, it's just as easy for for pastors and elders to not really diligently oversee the people within their congregation. Now, some churches are indeed tempted along this line. They're tempted towards laziness. They're tempted to, to not really exercise any sort of meaningful oversight, while other churches are tempted... Uh, In in the other extreme, they're tempted to micromanage the lives of of their congregants and to be legalistic. This is why it is absolutely crucial that churches are not independent but belong to a broader federation of churches. When we as pastors and elders in the URCNA meet for classes and synod, that is to say our, our broader church meetings, the main agenda items usually are disciplinary cases. Churches bring before the broader church real disciplinary cases that they're facing because they need and are required to receive objective counsel from other shepherds who are not personally involved in the situation. And there's a lot of wisdom to this because it's very difficult for local leaders to stay down the middle of the road and actually be faithful to the principles and insights that Paul and Jesus gives us in his word. So one way in which you can pray for your leaders is that we would be faithful to do what Paul says here and elsewhere in the New Testament. We'd be faithful to not be legalistic, not micromanage, but we'd be faithful to uh, correct those who deviate from the truth in a loving way, calling people to repentance and faith in the gospel. How does one build a healthy church? To return to that initial question I asked you at the beginning, how does one build a healthy church, a church in which Christ's presence is promised to dwell? Well, Paul here is abundantly clear. We are to insist upon the trustworthy sayings of the historic creeds and confessions and correct those who depart from them. Let us pray.